some of us began watching the video series, The Chosen, with friends that we invited. It's a series on the life of Jesus and a really fun and compelling way to introduce people to Jesus. Tonight is um, week three of eight, and I thought for the rest of the weeks that uh, we're going through the series, we'd look on Sunday mornings at one of the key passages behind the episode that's shown showing that evening. Now, if you're not watching, that's totally fine. This won't, that won't affect hearing the sermons. If you are watching, hopefully it'll make the episodes more meaningful and impactful for you. There's a danger, though, in doing this, which made me a bit, in, a bit hesitant. And um, the danger is for those who are attending discussion groups where we're discussing the episodes with friends. And that is that after hearing a sermon this morning, we're going to roll into discussion with a whole bunch of new knowledge. And it may be tempting for us to want to share what we know or to try to explain everything for the other people in the group. And that actually is not helpful for the other people in the group, especially for those who are new to Jesus, who are exploring him for the first time. Because what they need is not to feel like everyone knows more than them. Like they somehow missed out on some critical information that everyone else seems to have but them. What they need rather is to feel like they belong. And like no question is a dumb question to ask. And like, uh, like they can be free to share their opinions and perspectives. And our job as followers of Jesus isn't to be the Bible answer people, to correct everyone, or to educate everyone about everything. Our job is rather to walk with people as fellow travelers and to help them discover who Jesus is for themselves by listening well to them, by asking good questions, by giving them space to grapple with who Jesus is as they're getting to know him, in this case, through the chosen. Make sense? If we can do that, then hopefully for us who are watching, these sermons will be personally valuable as we get two chances each week for the next few weeks to think about the same story or theme about Jesus. Now, I don't know about you, but the gospel accounts of Jesus's life and ministry are my favorite part of the Bible. They're indeed gospel. They're good news because they reveal Jesus to us. They show us who he is, why he came, what he accomplished, why he's the most awesome human being ever to live, and why he's also the most clear and accurate revelation of God that God has ever given us. There's nothing more important or more wonderful than getting to know Jesus better. Okay, so into the Gospels. Today, Mark chapter 10, verses 13 to 16. Feel free to turn there if you have your Bible or pull it up on your phone. It's a story where Jesus welcomes some little children to him and blesses them. Mark chapter 10, 13 to 16. If you watched the Super Bowl this year or the Olympics, you probably have seen the E-Trade commercial where two executives in suits track down the toddler from past E-Trade commercials it takes a helicopter for them to reach him. He's gone into retirement, off the grid, into the wilderness. When they find him, they try to persuade him to come back. The world needs you, they plead. 
Seriously? <laughs> a big financial institution needs a small child? Well, it actually sounds a lot like what Jesus says in today's passage about the kingdom of God. Verses 14 and 15, Jesus says, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. Why? Why does the kingdom of God belong to little children? Is it because children are innocent and pure, not sullied or corrupted by life like we adults are? Or is it because children have great imaginations and openness, they have simple faith, so they don't have trouble believing in fantastic or miraculous things that we adults relegate to the world of make-believe? No, actually, neither of these aspects of children is what Jesus is getting at. How do we know? Well, first of all, Jesus doesn't say it's these aspects that make kids ideal candidates for his kingdom. And also, second, we know that Jesus taught in an age when children were not valued or idealized like they are today. Back then, children were not held up as examples of faith or innocence. Rather, children were often overlooked and undervalued because until they grew up, they had little to contribute to society. These were days when survival was an ever-pressing concern, and you loved your kids deeply for sure, but until they grew up and could help on the farm, they were in many ways a liability rather than an asset in your struggle to survive. Kids had no status or worth in society at that time. You, you can see for the disciples in today's passage, there was no place in their thinking for children in Jesus' ministry. The disciples were engaged, after all, in important, weighty spiritual matters. And there was no time for silly trivialities like kids. So the disciples rebuke the parents who bring these kids, and rebuke is a strong term, right? And you know, there's a danger for us the more serious we get about Jesus. And the more we realize, as we should, how much is at stake. For the disciples, the existence of their nation was hanging in the balance. And for us, likewise, the fate of nations and the eternal souls of people are at stake, not to mention God's glory and the destiny of the world. And so we can get so deep and so spiritual or, or theological that we don't have time for the small or the insignificant. And boy, I know I struggle with this. After all, I take my faith seriously. And I've got a lot invested in doing my job as a pastor seriously. I've, got, I've spent six years in graduate school, learning theology, studying ministry. I know so many complicated things in my brain. And I have a natural bent towards strategic thinking and planning. And yet Jesus is suggesting here that a good litmus test for our spiritual maturity and whether our focus and our heart are actually in the right place is this. Is there time, is there room for children in what we're doing? And if there isn't, then we 
have probably become too important in our own eyes. And we don't really have enough faith in God. Because we're probably trying to do God's work for Him instead of depending on Him for the outcome of our efforts. Let me say that again because I know I need to hear it as much as anyone. If there isn't room or place for children in what we're doing, then we have probably become too important in our own eyes and don't really have much faith in God. Because likely we're trying to do God's work for him instead of depending on him for the outcome of our efforts. You see, let's not forget as we read the gospel stories that Jesus is headed for a cross. Jesus is a king who will conquer and rule by being apprehended, falsely convicted, victimized, and snuffed out. In Jesus' kingdom, victory comes through defeat, success through failure. Power is found in weakness. And so it's little wonder that we must enter that kind of kingdom like children. Meanwhile, if you keep reading past verse 16, the powerful and the rich struggle to get into Jesus' kingdom. They're at a huge disadvantage. Just let that contrast sink in. The rich and powerful versus little children. Again, Jesus doesn't point us to children because they're wonderfully innocent or full of simple faith. No, it's rather that children, more than anyone in the view of of most people around Jesus, exemplify having nothing to offer. Children had no power, no status, no money, no knowledge or wisdom to speak of. So they came unpretentiously, needy, vulnerably, the least of society. John Stott, the late British interpreter, puts it this way. There's a reason that, things, uh, that on things like tax forms, we call children our dependents. <laughs> they are very dependent. And so if you want to know how to enter the kingdom that Jesus came to bring, look at children. Look at their weakness, their powerlessness, their dependence. The Greek word translated little children in this passage is paideon. It's the word we get pediatric from. And it's often translated as infants, or uh, in general, many scholars would say it refers to children, little children who are roughly six Uh, seven years or younger. When my own kids were that young, um, we sure loved them, but they didn't have a lot to contribute to the working of our family. They ate our food. They demanded our attention. They messed up our house every day. I remember times when when our kids were young and Anne would be out of the house for some reason for the morning and I was in charge of watching them. And I was hoping, you know, to get a project done on a Saturday morning or maybe just to clean up the kitchen to surprise Anne while she was gone. But but I'd often get interrupted by the kids with with a problem or with a mess. And, And that one was barely solved before there was another. And then they'd need a snack. And then 
we need to clean up from the snack. And then there would be a diaper to change. And then another mess. And then, and then, and before I know it, lunchtime would arrive and I'd be exhausted. And I'd realize my agenda, my plan for the day never even got started. Yet my kids retained a place in our home and still retain a very important place because they're loved. And they received our constant care and and attention because they needed us and we loved them. And to such as those children, Jesus says, belongs the kingdom of God. The kingdom Jesus brings is one where nobody is there because they earned it or deserve it, or are pulling their own weight, or contributing enough. Rather, everyone in the kingdom is there because they've received it as a pure gift. And because children are able naturally to receive in this way, and because they serve as examples and teachers to the rest of us in this regard, the kingdom of God belongs to them much more naturally than it belongs to the rich or the powerful. I don't know how many of you have ever bought a new baseball glove. Um, I remember as a kid buying my very first new glove. It was a Rawlings deep pocket with a special finger hole on on the back. And uh, I'd saved and I'd saved for it. I'd seen it in the catalog. And now I had it. It was perfect. Not a scuff on it. It had that new leather smell. And I couldn't wait for the next game to get out there and use it. But I quickly discovered as great as my new glove was, it was a lot less useful to me than my old beat-up glove. Because the ball kept bouncing out of my new glove because it was stiff. And so I began the ritual that many kids have gone through, stomping on my glove, Um, placing heavy objects on it overnight, sticking an old ball in it and wrapping it with rubber bands, rubbing it with oil, trying to break it in and break it down so I could actually use it. And um, we're sort of like that glove when it comes to our relationship with God. When we've got so much to bring to the table, We're stiff, and we're tough, and we're not very useful to our master. But when we've become like children, weak, needy, empty-handed, desperate even, then we're soft and pliable, and we respond easily to the hand of the one who would use us. Our sovereign, all-powerful king has no need of our resources or our talents. He's not impressed by our knowledge or our skill. But he loves us anyway. And he invites us to come, weak and empty-handed like children. Children who he wants to love and care for. And then children who he wants to invite to help in what he's doing. And so let's remember whenever there's a baby crying during the service or a kid getting a little bit loud or silly somewhere near you, 
remember that this church belongs to them as much as, or maybe even more so than it belongs to us. And as we teach them and as we correct them, which we need to do, let's remember that they are also our teachers when it comes to how we are to enter the kingdom of God. And I think we as a church do a pretty good job of welcoming and valuing children already. So let's just continue to excel in that more and more. The late Mother Teresa, among her other amazing works, rescued and cared for orphans abandoned by their parents in India. And she must truly have understood Jesus' heart on this matter. Listen to this story about her told by the journalist Malcolm Muckridge. He says, in my television interview with Mother Teresa, I raised the point as to whether, in view of the commonly held opinion that there are too many people in India, it was really worth trying to salvage a few abandoned children who might otherwise be expected to die of neglect, malnutrition, or some related illness. It was a point, as I was to discover subsequently, so remote from her whole way of looking at life that she had difficulty grasping it. The notion that there could in any circumstances be too many children was to her as inconceivable as suggesting there were too many bluebells in the forest or too many stars in the sky. It's interesting in scripture how God's enemies have often been child slayers. Pharaoh, who decreed that all the baby boys should be thrown in the Nile. Herod, who ordered the boys of Bethlehem slaughtered the Babylonians who dashed the Jewish infants against the rocks. This kind of thinking comes straight from the devil. God loves children. And so we have to ask ourselves, how do we feel about children? How much do we value them? Is our perspective more like that of Jesus or more like that of Pharaoh or Herod? I think we'll find, because I know this has been true in my own life, that when I am not welcoming of children, it has more to do with my own selfishness and my unhealthy need for control than anything else. Jesus says, let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them. In fact, Mark says Jesus was indignant when his disciples tried to stop the children from coming. Indignant is a strong word. In his commentary, James Edwards describes it as to arouse to anger or to vent your displeasure instead of keeping it inside. Jesus was indignant. In other words, he was hopping mad about his disciples' behavior. When the children were being denied a chance to come to him, for Jesus, this was such a big deal that he reacted strongly at an emotional level. And you know, you can tell a lot about a person by what they get emotional about in spontaneous, unscripted situations. Things that, that make you cry or, or smile or make you livid are good windows into where your heart is really at. And Jesus' heart is for these little ones who, to those around him, were little more than urchins or rugrats. Here is Jesus. He came into the world to bring the kingdom of God, to save the world. He's 
focused on matters of utmost importance with the weight of the world on his shoulders and in an unguarded moment when his true feelings are revealed, these are feelings of indignation that some children are being denied the chance to be with him. Let that sink in for a moment. We're learning something very important about the heart of Jesus here. It's this. When we overlook the children, when we fail to realize their importance to Jesus, Jesus is indignant. He feels strongly about it. It makes him mad. He says, let the little children come to me. And he takes them in his arms and he blesses them. Imagine being one of those kids who grew up having been blessed by Jesus, taken in his arms. And that's what Jesus wants to do for every child in this church. And if you can receive it like a child, it's what Jesus wants to do for you too. So how do we apply this to ourselves today? What does it mean for us to let the little children come to Jesus so he can bless them? Let me suggest four things. First, we can raise children, and we can try to raise them to know Jesus. You know, all through history, followers of Jesus have done this. They have born biological children. They have also taken in orphans. They have rescued infants who are being literally thrown out, and they have raised those within the community of Jesus. And it's always been very hard work. Having kids is hard work. Adopting kids is hard work. It's expensive. It's exhausting at times. It's messy. It means giving up our freedoms. So much so that, that at least in the developed world today, people have stopped having kids. People are not having enough Children, the, the um, demographers tell us, to replace them when they die in the, develop, the developed world. In these countries, the population is not maintaining except through immigration. Because if you want to have what you want, to have leisure, to have prosperity, kids aren't the way to get it. But as followers of Jesus, we aren't about having what we want, right? We're about laying down our life in love like our Lord did because our Lord has promised us and we're discovering that if we do lay down our life in love, we actually find life in abundance. And I can tell you, for Ann and I at least, as we've raised our kids, that's been abundantly true. Didn't always feel like that in the middle of the night or changing all those diapers, but we had to wait for it and it came. Second application. The second thing we can do is stay emotionally and relationally connected to our children, or for you grandparents, to your grandchildren. You know, in the past 20 or 30 years, our knowledge of the human brain and how it works has just exploded. And one of the things we've learned is, and this won't be a surprise to many of you, but some people need scientific data before they're willing to believe anything. Um, what we've learned is that kids are like relational magnets or relational sponges. 
kids desperately need almost more than anything else to have someone to attach to, someone who will love them and who will provide for them, someone to be connected to. Kids are vulnerable. Kids are empty relationally unless they have someone trustworthy to love them and to care for them. And if they don't find that, it just about destroys them. And here's the thing. Normally, that's their parents or else some other caregiver when kids are young. But as they get older, as they become adolescents, it tends to shift to other people. Maybe friends, maybe someone, or sometimes another adult in their life. Now, here's the other thing science has learned. Do you know where kids develop their beliefs and their values, their sense of right and wrong, and their character? They get it, they absorb it from those they're relationally attached to. And that's why if you follow Jesus, and if you love Jesus, and if Jesus is real to you, and your kids see that, and you're not a hypocrite at home, and, and you love your kids, and you give them a decent example, most of the time, they'll love Jesus. They'll believe in Jesus, at least when they're young. But what happens when they get older, and they pull away from you, and they start attaching to their peers, and their teachers, or their coaches, or whoever? Well, our beliefs and our values and our character usually reflects who we're attached to. And so if we as a parent lose our attachment to our kids and they attach to someone else, guess what? There's a decent chance their beliefs and their values will change too to reflect those new attachments. And so if you want your kids to follow Jesus, this isn't a formula, but it is my third application point, by the way, to disciple our kids. Here are the two most important ways to do that. Again, no promises, no formula. People are a mystery. But first, we need to follow Jesus ourselves. Faithfully and earnestly. We need to live out our faith. We need to grow spiritually. And then we need to share it personally, to share who we are with our kids not by lecturing them or preaching at them too much, but by sharing our own heart and our own experiences and above all, living it out by our example. And we need to do it humbly. Um, as parents, we need to admit our shortcomings along the way. And when we're not healthy, when, we're not, when we don't have character, we need to get help for that because our kids see it. And then the second thing we need to do is we need to stay attached to our kids. We need to maintain our connection with our kids at all costs. And that's the main reason that Ann and I have homeschooled our kids, but you don't have to go to that extreme. You don't even have to be the sole caregiver of your kids. But here's what you do have to do. And this becomes more important as a parent the more time you delegate caregiving to other people besides yourself. You have to monitor whether you're maintaining a strong connection, a strong attachment with your kids. And monitor whether their other attachments are supporting or competing with the values and the beliefs that you're seeking to instill. I wish I could say a lot more about this. We don't have time, but if you want to know more about it, 
Talk to Anne, talk to me. Talk to Wanda Morgan. She's a psychologist. She could tell you all about it. Um, one last word, though, um, to those of you who don't have kids. Children, especially as they get older, need other adult attachments besides their parents that reinforce the values and beliefs of their parents. So if you're a grandparent or you're a spiritual aunt or uncle, you can have a huge role in the life of those kids. And Ann and I, I know, are so grateful for the way some of you have done that for our kids and for other kids in this church. Your love for them, your interest in them, your, the example of your life has been huge in strengthening and reinforcing their faith. All right, very quickly, fourth application. Empower kids to do ministry. Because guess what Jesus does after he welcomes people to himself and blesses them? He lets them help him do his job. And isn't this what kids love to do? They love to help, at least when they're young. <laughs> um, now, they aren't always a big help when they're young. But truth be told, if we ask Jesus how much help we are in bringing in his kingdom, he might say, neither are we. But remember, ministry is about God's presence and God's power in our weakness. And that makes children well qualified to help. I, I've seen it. I've seen our middle schoolers from CBC at a youth conference praying for other kids. I, I've seen or I've heard the stories of them going to school and telling their friends about Jesus. I've seen our CBC kids collecting food for those who are hungry giving away a portion of their allowance to those in poverty. I remember one time as I was seeking to grow in listening to God, to hearing God's voice, I was talking to one of my kids about it and about my struggle and my desire to, to learn to hear better. And, and I asked them, can you hear God's voice? And they were like, yeah, of course, doesn't everyone? And so often we underappreciate what our kids can do. We, we sometimes assume they're just consumers and, and we have to cater to their desires and meet their needs. But what we end up doing then is just reinforcing their consumer mentality as they grow up to adults. When instead we could be teaching them from a very young age that they have gifts, that they can contribute. And if they have faith in Jesus, Jesus can use them to do marvelous things. So let the little children come to Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for the reminder of how you want us all to come to you. And this topic of children can be painful for some of us. Um, we experience grief, regrets, frustrations, disappointments. Um, as those of us who are parents, we're so aware of our failures. Um, and I pray that you would point our eyes back to your face and um, show us what we can learn, what we can do for the kids in our life, for the kids who could be in our life. 
even as you remind us to be dependent on you like children ourselves. Amen.